Well, hello, the Midlands. That's right, isn't it? It's the Midlands. Fantastic. We, we always, um, we've been to the north and uh, we've done a lot of stuff in the south east, so it's absolutely fantastic to come to this part of the world. I'm one of my best friends from university. His dad has a pub in Bridge North, which on my way home I might frequent and see if I can sting him for a free meal. So that's my plan, leaving here. But it's lovely to be here with you all and thank you for the support that you've shown us. Uh, so far as an organisation, and I do hope uh, that you uh, as an area feel loved, but also that we can disseminate this message of God's love uh, for everyone suffering from emotional and mental health issues through our churches too, because uh, Cameron's been talking a lot about the big society, hasn't he, recently? And uh, on Monday I had the privilege of being in the Ministry of Justice. It was a bit like spooks, there was lots of kind of glass doors and you pressed them and they went and sort of opened into the inner sanctum. I was waiting for, a, for, for, sort of a, you know, for, for the whole team to be running around with guns, but they weren't. It was all very sensible. Um, the, the good news was there's an opportunity there for me to talk to the government about mental health reform in our prisons, particularly about what we as Christian people can do uh, in service provision uh, within the prison system. And, uh, you know, there's lots of opportunities for us as Christians today uh, to be ministering in this area. So I want to encourage you and say, um, now is the time, friends. And if you're a wounded healer like me, or if you're absolutely imperfect, fit and fettle, then great, good for you. Just get out there and get involved. I don't want anyone to feel that they can't participate or can't offer something uh, in Jesus' name, because Jesus has called us all as his servants and friends, and he'll equip those that he calls. I really believe that. Well, um, you might know something about me from Mind and Soul. Um, Rob and I set the organisation up in the first instance. He's the clinician, I'm the vicar, and uh, I run a church in Harrow called St Peter's, and we have a medical centre in our building, and we, we, uh, it's part of my vision uh, to work in an area where Jesus heals us body, mind, and spirit. So uh, that's a little picture of what I'm involved in. And I'm going to talk to you now for the next 40 minutes or so uh, about the provision of pastoral care. Someone asked an excellent question a little bit earlier on when they said, uh, I'm not a professional, what can I do? Now I want to encourage you, if you're involved in the church here, to ensure that your church has set up a pastoral team. I, ha- I run something called Pastoral Net, and I, and I have a team of pastors who can be equipped in pastoral ministry. Now, if you're in the Anglican Church, your local diocese will do a pastoral carers provision training. And actually, that's free, and ask your bishop. There's one near me uh, who might be able to point you in the direction of the pastoral assistance training course. If you're in a vineyard church or if in an Elim church, I know they have pastoral assistance training courses too. Uh, I'm sure your denomination will be counted in pastoral training. But it's available to you and you can become part of your pastoral team. And what I'm talking about here is five things to do in a pastoral crisis specifically. And if you're not yet trained and you don't think this applies to you, imagine that you're going to leave this conference, go back to see your vicar or your priest or your church minister and say, I've been to this Mind and Soul conference. I think, firstly, can I join our pastoral team because I know we've got one and I want to have a special focus on mental health. Or we haven't got a pastoral team yet and I want us to set one up. And I've got some really good ideas about how we're not going to get into a pickle, which was another really good question which Kate was asked just a little bit earlier on. So I'm going to be talking about the five P's of pastoral care in a crisis specifically. And I think if we get this right, we'll get things right when things aren't a crisis. It will all make sense as we go along. Now what earmarks a pastoral crisis is the fact that it's actually a crisis. I always think it's best to think about the worst possible scenario. Maybe that's because I've got an anxiety disorder. But I'd like to turn it around a little bit so uh, I use my, uh, my failings to my advantage. And so thinking about the worst possible outcome 
outcomes enable us to work through the best possible outcomes. Now, some people would say that was a safety behaviour and not particularly useful, but at times it is helpful to think about what might potentially happen. And in, and in a crisis, uh, a crisis transcends the normal structures and perimeters of life uh, and difficult times. It has the potential, a crisis has the potential to threaten life, either of the individual or of those in their care, or to adversely disturb either their mental health or the health of those around them. So a crisis is a very specific context. Now, crises are distinctly challenging as a set of circumstances, and whilst we often characterise uh, a person as having a crisis, the reality of a crisis often moves beyond the dramas of everyday living. Now, we will all know people, we might actually be the people who live in crisis, and we are always saying, oh my goodness, you would not believe what is happening to me this week. And there are some people in church where we actually, if we're on the door, we don't say, how are you? We just say, it's great to see you, come on in! So, crises are different, aren't they, to that situation, in that crises are things which really go outside and beyond the routine nature of life and its, its small dramas. And the first thing I want to encourage us towards is... Kate, how does this work? Why am I trying technology when I'm useless with it? Do I need to press something? She took this out. Oh, I took out the thing. I'm really sorry. There's another thing that you need in this machine to make it work. Where's, where's my little technological friend from church? I was always doing something with them. Hello. It's got, I can see a red mark now. I can see a laser. Something's happening. Oh, there we go. I'm there. It's always worth training in these things in advance. This is part of the plan, I honestly... I, I foresaw this, and it's an illustration I was going to use. <laughs> the first thing I want to... The first of the Ps this morning is perception versus panic. And you all will find this a helpful tool in your circumstances. The first of the five things to do in a pastoral crisis is to use your perception to assess what's actually happening. As pastors and leaders, or people involved in pastoral care, or want to, people who want to be involved in pastoral care, uh, we can have a desire to help that can often lead us to act before we've actually got a solid grasp of the true magnitude of a situation. And when we're working with vulnerable people who often live with chaotic perimeters, we are always in danger of overestimating, or secondarily underestimating, the extent of a crisis, the crisis which we're dealing with. And there's a huge danger in us believing that uh, an individual is overstating or understating the threats that they're facing. Now, one of the great gifts of the Lord, I think, is the gift of discernment. And I think this is a gift that we all need to require more of. I think as, the, in the, as, a, as a member of the church at large, I think we need more of the gift of discernment. I don't necessarily think we need more of certain gifts, but there's certainly some gifts. And discernment is one which we could all do with a bit more of. And where pastoral care is concerned, this is absolutely fundamental to people's well-being. Because crisis, by their very nature, are often driven by other people. Uh, the crisis which really led to the exposure of my anxiety issues was, uh, was the 7-7 bombings. And I'm kind of reliving that a little bit at the moment during the inquest. I was um, the sort of first-line response in the Edgware Road station. And um, 
He might have read a little bit of my, my story about that, which I've, I, I've written about in various magazines. But um, I remember, you know, coming part my office is directly opposite the station. And I remember um, taking my wife, who was going to a conference in Oxford, to Paddington, walking past Edgware Road. And there's always cordons up outside our house. It was just normal. You know, there is more cordon tape in London than there is videotape. It's just one of those things that goes on in London. So I walked past the cordon, walked into my office, and then I just suddenly felt this thick, you know, a surge of desire to put on my dog collar, which I know the bishop is present, but I, it's not something that I normally do. But I felt this great willingness to wear my dog collar, and I, I put it on as if it was some sort of superhero outfit. Uh, <laughs> and I kind of appeared, you know, onto the streets of London, ready to do damage for the kingdom of God. And I, I remember going under the cordon uh, at about five past nine, and a man running towards me, with, with, you covered in soot, and he, he just was sweating. And he said, they're just their bodies, I remember that. And, and, I, and I kind of strode forward under the line, you know, into a crisis, but had no perception of what I was stepping into. I'd not stopped to think, to ask. I'm not sure whether I would have gone under the cordon had I known. But I didn't use my perception I didn't ask the right questions. When I first began pastoral ministry, I often found myself exhausted through misreading crises, and that was one, and responding to crises in the wrong way. And as my perception began to tune into the distinctive of what makes a crisis, I found that I've been much more effective in my actual responses. When we're setting up pastoral ministry, I suggest that we assist our perception through the use of questioning. Because we can't rely on our senses all the time. We have to ask the right questions. And if you're wanting to be involved in pastoral care, either as someone who's licensed or as just a member of your own congregation, ask the right questions and you'll, you'll assist your perception in, in understanding how best to respond. I'll always remember the first time that's really came into play for me when a bright young um, 20-something um, came into my office, and he was a very smart gent, you know, probably rowing, or, you know, sort of, you know, had all the crew clothing on and a, a backpack, and he was very smart in his loafers. And he kind of came through my door, uh, and, and, and he was clearly a man in crisis. And on his, back, on his back, he had this backpack filled with all of his earthly belongings, and um, he was very emotionally distraught. We went into a meeting room where he rattled through an incredible story of family abuse. And I was quite wet behind the ears, so I was, was, I was going, really? You know, Vickers, you're not supposed to be shocked at all. You're supposed to look like you've heard it all once before. Oh, yes. Oh, oh, yes. Oh, yes. But I was sort of going, oh, really? Oh, oh, really? Oh, that's terrible. And as he moved through the story, I felt the Holy Spirit prompting me to ask one question that I now use many times in response to a certain crisis. I said, I hope you don't mind me asking, but I'd wondered if you'd ever experienced any mental health issues. This was just a throwaway line that I thought made me sound a little bit more professional. And the young man in my story said to me, oh, yes. He said, I've been sectioned three times before. In fact... Now you mention it, I haven't taken my medication for about a month now. I remember sort of revelation coming upon me and, uh, and suddenly realising that the story I'd heard was distinctive and traumatic, but it wasn't the story of the crisis that we were actually facing together. His crisis was actually a manic episode. And the next steps that we took together were contacting his psychiatrist and me accompanying him to his doctor's consultation. 
And uh, he went on to become a regular member of our congregation. But compassionate questioning can give you helpful information, but it also corroborates the truth of a story. And this isn't the Spanish Inquisition. I'm not having a poke at the Catholics by saying that. I'm just saying it's not the Spanish Inquisition, but it could have been the English Reformation. Okay, just to make that a good one for the Protestants there as well. It's about generously and lovingly ask the right questions. You know, I've been, I was hearing on the radio too on the way up here at about six o'clock a debate about, uh, about, about the lack of rape convictions and uh, a baroness was on the, on the radio saying she hoped that the, 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 the work that we'd done wouldn't be affected by the cuts that were made. And she was talking about a time where women who'd been raped or sexually abused were questioned as if they were liars. You know, they were literally interrogated to try and, you know, to find out if there was any cracks in their story. And I was thinking about mental health and thinking, could we do the same, you know, in this kind of a way? Compassionate, loving, believing, accepting, questioning is fundamental to this first P of ours as we help uh, to feed good and balanced perception. Compassionate questioning can really corroborate the truth of a story. And when asking questions, I say it again, make sure they're sympathetic but also look for the details. Ask for details. And my advice is always to ask the same question at the beginning and the end of your group of questions. Because the two answers that sound the same are always a good answer, aren't they? They know that in Parliament. Generally, they ask the question twice. The old proverb goes, well, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. And this really goes back into this whole essence of perception for us as people. Let's not overestimate our ability to be helpers and healers. Let's estimate only what the Lord has given to us. Let's only say that the gifts that I've been given are the Lord's. The ministry I've been given is the Lord's. The work that I'm doing, it's the Lord's. Let me take no gain or gratification from being the healer, but let me just rejoice in pointing people to the healer. And that way we limit the desire that we have to jump in and be the fixer who receives all of the, all, all of the uh, acclamation and proclaim. Now, the second P today is protection. And this is a really fundamental one. It might sound a bit odd to have this in the mix. But crises are, by their definition, places of danger, and they need to be treated with real caution. In terms of protection, I want to subcategorize. Firstly, environment Crises can put people in imminent physical danger, either the client or the person pastoring them. And obvious, obviously, if an environment that you're making contact with someone in is in itself dangerous, relocate to a safe place. It's, um, I remember when I was, uh, I, was, I was actually a rower and I was in Marlow, and I was rowing and we were having a little break in my university crew, and then there was an accident on the bridge, and an old man managed to turn his car upside down on the bridge. He, he'd driven up one of the stanchions. And, um, and I ran up the road and got into his car upside down and to check he was okay. And I thought I'd better not press the seatbelt button because I thought he might be injured. But he was upside down, and I was underneath him. And then think he pressed the button. And that wasn't very good because then I was upside down on the car roof, under a car, under an old man covered in glass in my rowing lycra, which it didn't look right or feel right. <laughs> the thing is that when there's a crisis, you know, you can get into the car too. 
And you, can, you, you don't know what's going to happen, because you might think I'm going to leave you seatbelt buckled in, and actually they might press the seatbelt buckle and they might be on top of you. Another clergy friend of mine said that when he was a curate, uh, he's now a, an older gentleman, when he was a curate, he got a call in the middle of the night from a woman who'd been in a pastoral crisis, and he drove quickly round to her house, the door was swinging on his hinges, and he literally ran in, and the door slammed behind him, and there was a large naked lady waiting to embrace him. <laughs> He suddenly realised that the pastoral crisis wasn't all it had been cracked up to be. He looked for an escape route out of a, a window on the ground floor. So, you know, we need to be sensible for our own protection, but also for the protection of those people that we're seeking to serve. If you're in a crisis pastoral situation, your perception gives you a warning about potential danger. And Kate so eminently described how emotions uh, allude to an analytical response. And that butterfly's feeling is worth listening to. If you feel uncomfortable, trust your emotion and look around for the danger. If, you're, if the hackles on the back of your neck have risen up and are, and are really right up there and you feel danger, listen to your own body and your own emotions. Ask sensible questions. And don't let the propensity to be the healing saviour overtake you because Jesus is the only healing saviour. You're his child and he cares about you too in that situation. Now, child and vulnerable personal protection is just a, a little caveat I want to give here because I know as a church leader that all of your churches, I'm sure, will have the rights and legislation in place for this. But it's essential if you're a pastoral worker in your church that you have a, you have a valid uh, child protection policy in place for the protection of children, but also for the protection of you as an adult carer. And it's so important that you have one of those in place. And if you're not sure, speak to your church leader this week and ask to see a copy of the guidelines of child protection and your church policy. We'll talk more about that a little bit later on. It's a real mistake to go with the uh, kind of Christian, uh, very warm and overriding uh, sense of, oh, well, the rules are for the world and, you know, this is kind of our deal. You know, the church does it differently when it comes to child protection issues, okay? Just be absolutely clear that as Christians we're called to be excellent in every area and to do it better than it's done in the world, not to be less professional and not to be less caring because sometimes our first choice to care can actually lead us or bring other people into situations of danger. I want to mention in this area too, emotional boundaries and transference. People in Christian pastoral ministry are often exceptionally emotionally connected to the pain of their client. I remember when I started Christian ministry, when I used to pray for people at the front of our church, that's our tradition, I'd always start weeping. They weren't weeping, I was weeping. I was thinking, who's getting ministry here, you or me? I was absolutely exhausted by the end of an evening of prayer ministry at the front. I cried my eyes out for about two hours. And uh, I'd go home absolutely flat out. I'd be thinking, oh, I'm shattered by this ministry that I'm doing. The emotions were mine. You know, I wasn't allowing myself to breathe spiritually or, or, or emotionally. And as a result, I was bearing the, the burden of that in my body. But, you know, Jesus bore the burden of my sin in his body. <laughs> like, I need to be carrying, putting my burdens onto him not letting everyone put their burdens onto me. And if people are putting their burdens onto me and not Jesus, there's a massive problem because I can't fix those people. Only he can make them well. 
So we have to be facilitators of Jesus' ministry and be aware that we have to have emotional boundaries in place. And boundaries in themselves don't just protect us, but they're also healing for the people that we serve. I work with a lot of people with addictions, problems with addictions, not just alcohol and drugs, but also sexual addictions and codependency. And for them, boundaries are the healing things that will assist them to live a freer life. It's not less compassionate to be boundaried. With those people, it's more compassionate to be boundaried, and it protects you too. I still remember, I'm going to have to speed up here. Am I talking too quickly? Do we need more time in this conference? You're not hungry yet, are you? I know, I'm not going to play that manipulative game, get you to give up your lunch hour so I can tell lots of fun stories. But when I was in Oxford, I was working as a hospital chaplain uh, for, uh, for a little period, eight months, and I was in the Churchill Hospital, which is, uh, which is uh, you know, north Oxford, and this incredible experience of transference between me and, and, and the wife of a sick priest. And I remember being asked to go and visit a priest who was on the renal unit, and um, he was in barrier nursing because he had MRSA as well, and he had four or five strokes, and his kidneys are completely packed up. I remember getting to the door and seeing the sign that said, you know, the sort of the, the sign that says, Barrier nursing area, you know, contamination, you wash your hands and all that sort of stuff. And I literally pre- pretty much had a panic attack at the door because I, I was terrified of actually even going in because I thought I might catch something. I was more worried about my welfare then than I was about the person I was going to visit. And then I went in kind of trying to keep my hands behind my back so I didn't touch anything, but for my benefit, not his. And then I sort of stood by his bed and, and looked at this, you know, this really broken form of a man who'd been serving God for 40, 50 years, and um, I just literally thought, well, I mean, what, you know, what am I really going to do here? You know, I remember sort of trying to muddle together a little sort of prayer. Uh, God, you know, bless, bless this uh, priest and, and everything. And his wife was literally staring at me from the other side of the bed. And um, I said, so, you know, how, 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 are, things, how are things going? <laughs> it's kind of a pretty bad question to ask, really. I mean, she'd been standing there for two years. So it was a pretty terrible question to ask. I remember her looking at me with a level of disdain and disbelief as I sort of kept my hands in my pockets. She could tell I didn't want to be there. I could tell that she could tell that I didn't want to be there. <laughs> and I think we both kind of looked at each other. And so I just stood there a little bit longer and felt really uncomfortable. And I realized I was completely out of my depth. And um, I said, I'll just pray a little bit more because that would be distracting from her gaze, which was pretty sinister and frightening. And then, and then I sort of prayed a little bit more. I, I fumbled together something Anglican. I tried to make something sound like it would be official. It was better than sort of free form. Seemed more appropriate at the time. And then I, I, I literally, I went through the doors, and I went through the doors, and I, I remember running. You know that linoleum smell? Linoleum. And that kind of disinfectant. I remember that, like in my nostrils. I was like Eric Little running down this hospital corridor, like tears, like literally streaming down my face. Like I ran into the chaplain's office. I said, I can't do this anymore. She hates me. Who hates you? She said, the woman, the, the wife, she hates me. I was like literally blubbing for hours. I went home. I was weeping over the body of this broken man that I just was out of my depth. All of the anger, all of the pain, all of the frustration of this woman burned into my soul whilst I stood by her broken husband. She educated me in transference. She showed me how unprepared I was 
to stand alongside and how much of a saviour complex I had about being the person who was going to offer something good. You know what? We went, she just is an amazing woman. She scooped me up, this, this woman, because I went back with fear and trembling, and she took me for coffees to educate me in pastoral care. She taught me how to love people who are standing by the broken. And her husband passed away. And I remember she came to a minor soul conference after having not seen her for six, seven years. I said, do you remember me? I said, not half. <laughs> this talk I wrote when I met, after I met you, you know, this is... This is the thing, you know, we need to be aware of the boundaries. We need to be aware of the transference and the pain we're going to face when we're walking with the broken and the wounded. You know, I would always recommend on a practical level that for each person supporting someone in a crisis, there is a team of three supporting that single person in prayer, in accountability, uh, in discussion, in support in responsibility, are your needs being looked after as a pastor? If you don't think you need them, you need them more than anyone. Lay down your pastoral ministry now and go and see your senior church leader. If you don't think you need support, you've got the biggest problem of any pastoral carer. Okay? It's the first danger point. If you think you don't need a life jacket, then you're in real danger of drowning. Are you carrying too much responsibility for the outcomes that you're hoping for? Protection. It's important for you and it's important for the people that you're supporting. Let's move on to this most exciting of areas. I hear a groan from the crowd. Oh, and no one's going to fall for that either because you know I'm going to be positive about this. And then you'll feel humiliated that you groaned. No, okay, it's me who groaned. Policy and planning is not the most exciting category in the world, let's face it. There aren't many great stories I can tell you about policy and planning. Other than I've done some, it was hard work, it was laborious, but it was necessary, and I recommend it to you. You know, I've mentioned a little about child protection already, but policy goes a lot deeper than just having your legal basis covered. And I think as a church, we can kind of think, okay then, squeeze us into the little box, We'll do your special processes and we'll do a risk assessment and we'll do a policy and just to keep you worldly people satisfied and then we'll get on with the real business of the kingdom of God. You know, that's how we look at it. But actually this is a gift to us. Policy is really a final expression of a carefully considered strategy towards pastoral care. Have you got a carefully considered strategy in your church towards pastoral care? If you haven't, why not? Because surely... A good strategy helps you to achieve well. Think about Gideon. He had a vague idea about beating the Midianites given to him by an angel, which was generally pretty positive. It meant the outcomes were likely to be good. And he had a kind of rough idea about what that meant. That meant kind of going into battle. But God showed him exactly what needed to happen. And he had to prepare for that properly. Remember, he had to find 300 glass jars from somewhere. And he had to kind of leave all his swords at home. And he had to have a little drinking competition down by the river to see who was a, a slurper and who was a, a cup drinker. You know, there was actual activity that needed to take place before battle began. And pastoral care is similar to that. We need to think carefully about our strategy. Imagine life is like a big ship cruising off into the sunset. 
The lifeboat policy has been put in place so the ship is legally covered. And they actually even have it in one of those little clip frames, you know, on the side of the boat. Here it is, our, lo- our lifeboat policy. Make sure you read it. You know, it's, it's up there in kind of in glitzy gold letters. But imagine if the lifeboat policy is not even being considered on the basis that there might ever be a real chance of the boat sinking. Imagine the lifeboat policy on the Titanic. No, too many lifeboats, it looks ugly. Get rid of four, five, six and seven and then we'll spread the ones that we've got out a bit more. That looks nicer. And the ropes are a bit brown. Can someone paint the ropes white, please? Because that will blend in more nicely with the side of the ship. And let's paint those ugly black blocks white as well because they're not very nice either. We don't need that many lifeboats on board. We just need our lifeboat policy to make sure that we're legally covered. Now, of course, what happened with the Titanic was that there weren't enough lifeboats for everyone because they'd taken them off for aesthetic reasons. And the ropes were white and painted, and the blocks were painted, so the boats didn't actually go down into the water because they were stuck. So the policy was useless because it didn't work. And that's true for many of us in churches. We actually haven't thought through the policy in terms of real planning. We've just thought about our legal coverage. Policy is not a one-hit statement of good practice that you write in 1975 and you've still got in your church archives now. And when someone comes, the archdeacon comes to visit you and says, oh yes, I've got a policy about pastoral care in the vault somewhere. You know, you need to have it on the table and say, look, this is what we've done this year when we did a team review. This is our good practice. And it's constantly informed and reinformed by new experiences in pastoral reflection. Policy and the guidelines that you write in response to your policy will be the lifeboats of your pastoral crisis management. They're the things that you need when the rubber hits the road. When things go wrong, you need to know what to do and you need to have rehearsed what you need to do. In a crisis situation, if you haven't already carefully rehearsed the essential aspects of your strategy, you're bound to either do damage or be damaged. That's the reality. You know, I had a, I, I'm supervising someone who's working with vulnerable young women at the moment. We had a really interesting situation the other day. I'm sure she won't mind this, me mentioning this. She didn't have a policy in place for what happens when someone who is under 18 runs away from home against their parents' wishes. And when that vulnerable person came to her to be looked after, she wasn't sure whether she should call the police, social services, or just look after the girl. Now, what happened was that this person had been registered as a missing person. And so the police were actually responsible. She didn't call the police straight away. She took the needs of the girl as being preeminent in the situation, which is very Christian and very loving. But as a 14-year-old minor, responsibility legally, when social services dictate you to take that 14-year-old girl back to the parent is to actually do what social services tell you to do and actually to follow the guidelines of the police as far as missing persons are concerned. Now, praise God, the situation worked out really well and she did the right thing, but she wasn't clear about what to do at the time that the crisis unfolded. And if things had gone wrong, they could have gone really wrong for her personally because she could have found herself personally culpable for a missing child. Serious. Do you see how important policy can be when it comes to pastoral care? Policy is also an expression of our resources, and they are absolutely key to our pastoral response. When we refer to our policy, we're referring not to an inane document, but to an institution, to experts and to services that have considered the best course of action and to, uh, you know, for what our clients should take. And it really frustrates me when church leaders and Christian pastors treat policy with a disparaging attitude, as if somehow it gets in the way of God's work. 
You know, it's just not true. Policy does not get in the way of God's work. Dry runs for crisis highlight holes where resources need to uh, step up and, and, and where issues need to be resolved in advance of an event. But they also mitigate the emotional pain that's caused by Christian care workers when they have to say no. Because then if you're a pastoral carer, you can say no because the policy has been in place and it supports you in a decision. There was a minor break in the tape at this point. We apologise if any content has been lost. This final perimeter in life is the perimeter into death. Managing your own boundaries and bringing crisis boundaries into play for your client are two of the most significant steps you can make in crisis pastoral care. And ultimately the choice of life is a choice that we all need our clients to make for themselves. It's a choice that we need to be aware of. We need to be realistic that the choice between life and death is a choice that's on the table where pastoral care in crisis is concerned. We need to have a policy for that too. How do we deal with a situation where someone is actively considering taking the step between life and death? It's one of the first policies you should have in your group of policies on pastoral care. How do you respond as Christian people when someone is threatening to or has attempted to take their own life. I want to say with a level of caution that I want to say this with a level of caution in the sense that those who may be under the influence of drugs or suffering from acute emotional distress may be unable to make decisions for themselves but in the, in the main we should be encouraging people to make a healthy decision for life but in certain circumstances uh, we need to actually make a decision for somebody. And if there's ever a time that we need to make use of the emergency services, it's when we believe that someone is at the point of not being able to make a decision for life for themselves. That's quite an austere thing to say, but it's a very, very important thing to say. It's also really important for you guys to know that there is a challenging instinctual and spirit-led borderland in managing pastoral crisis between offering distinct boundary choices for individuals and standing by when a person takes the wrong road. It's very, very tempting for us as Christian people to enforce boundaries in people's lives which actually don't assist them to move out of a life in crisis. It's so tempting for us to say, oh, you know, friend, you just need to be obedient to Scripture and get into line. If you would just live in the way that Scripture is telling you to live, then you wouldn't have any of these sort of problems in your life. Let me, as a mature Christian, sweep you up, patch you up, fix you up, put you back in your box, and then we'll all be happy. Unfortunately, what we often see with people who live in crisis is that crises return again and again and again, particularly in churches. Because overzealous Christians put the work of putting, in bound, putting boundaries in place into the lives of people, rather than empowering and equipping people to put those boundaries into their own lives. This is so, so important. Bearing in mind what I've just said about those very, very important times when we do need to take severe action to protect people, in the boundary between life and death, we must also, in the majority of crises, with full perception and relying on our, our plans, procedures and, and, and guidelines, 
make decisions which empower people to bring perimeters back into life. And if you're a pastoral carer and you're not living with boundaries, then you're not a good example to the people who are trying to assist out of pastoral crisis. Do you see what I mean? If you can't say, no, I'm not coming round because this is my day off, then you're saying to someone that life without boundaries is actually normative. In fact, you're modelling what's good. No, I don't have any boundaries in my life. You come round any time. No, my family don't matter anything to me. Don't worry about them. They don't care if I'm here or not. Come round any time. No, my kids, they don't care whether their daddy's out every single night of the week, whether they never see him for the first 10 years of their life. No worries at all. Don't worry about that. We don't do boundaries in this church. See what I mean? We're not there to assist people to bring perimeters back into their world by modelling and by saying no. Then we're not really going to be helping them or empowering them to live outside of a life of crisis. Ultimately, friends, as pastoral carers in crisis, you have to get over your own saviour complex. You have to offer only what your perimeters allow you to offer. And what what those perimeters allow you to offer are stipulated in your policies, guidelines, protection strategies, but most of all, they are stipulated by you as a person. They're stipulated in the healthy way that you live your life, in the boundary way that you demonstrate your love. Any pastoral situation ultimately relies on you, on your own perception and your own perspectives and on the Lord whom you serve. If you are ministering into a crisis, the worst thing you can lose is your own head and cross your own boundaries that you determined were unsafe or unhealthy for you to cross before the situation unfurled. I know that sounds quite harsh, but it's really just the truth. Crisis pastoral care has enough risks. The worst thing you can do is become your own liability. I did that, as I said, in the London bombings. And God showed me just that I was trying to do his work for him. Only he has the strength and the arms to carry that sort of crisis. So that leads me on to the final of my five Ps. I've got five minutes. Praise God. There we are. Personhood. And this is the kind of light, fluffy bookend of my talk today. But it's the most important bit, in my view. Not that you can take anything out of those different areas, but we have to remember this. Put on your goggles of personhood. The final thing to do in a pastoral crisis, or the first thing to do, is to simply see the people involved, including yourself, as people. Just to see the people involved. Not to see yourself as the fixer, Not to see the client as the crisis. Not to see the addict as the addict or the pregnant young mum as the pregnant young mum. Not to see the street kid as the street kid or the down and out as the down and out. To see the precious people that God knows and that God loves. To see the people through God's eyes. It might seem like an irony to you in the light of the apparent bureaucracy that I've mentioned of policy and planning and preparation and protection. But you know, this is the mistake that's also so common amongst Christian ministries when it comes to crisis pastoral care. The person-centred nature of pastoral care is established way back from the actual coalface of pastoral care. Pastoral care isn't about doing, it's about being beings, human beings, not human doings. 
We establish personhood in our minds in prayer. When we allow God to say, you are my son or you are my daughter, whom I love with you, I'm well pleased. When we have the words of affirmation over us. It's established in the resources and it's established in the thinking and planning that's already gone into a system that best protects and enables vulnerable and hurting people to pull back from the brink. Because it's not all about winning trophies and scoring points in the world of pastoral care. It's all about real lives, about real pain and about real love. When churches claim excellence in their Christ-like response to people in crisis, is that in fact an over-reliance on a few very gifted and concerned pastors? Or is it actually a deeply ingrained, developed and resourced system of response that expresses Christ's love, both to the Samaritan man, the robbed and beaten victim, the priest, the rich person, the poor? Is it person-centred, without prejudice? Is it Christ's love that's permeating the whole? Planning and policies are not there to turn people into statistics or to offer mechanistic responses. They're there to create the space and the structure for pastors to really pastor and to fully engage in the needs of the person in crisis before them. Secure that they're on solid ground and are networked with others who are sharing the load. If our response to a crisis is a crisis response, friends, we will be always... blowing a crisis into a disaster. If we have a crisis response to a crisis, then we're going to be turning a crisis into a disaster. But if we've got a prepared pastoral response to a crisis that's person-centred, God will be glorified. We'll see amazing transformation, and we'll see our own lives enriched by the experience of being pastors, as well as the lives of those whom we care. If there was a sixth P... Oops, it wouldn't be that. <laughs> it, it would be not that. It wouldn't be that. It would be this. It would be prevention. If I had another hour, we'd talk about how we can prevent pastoral crisis through pastoral teams and effective pastoral ministries. I'd love to talk about protection and prevention I can't do that now, but if I wanted to finish this talk well, I'd say it all begins and ends here in prayer. It begins on our knees, where God knows us and loves us, and through knowing him and his love for us, we can shed his love abroad into the hearts of those whom he's called us to care for and to stand with in the hard times of life. Should we just pray together as we close this section? Jesus, we want to confess where we've sometimes missed the boat and we've become the saviour, where we've felt pastoral ministry gives us the opportunity to meet the needs of our own hearts rather than the needs of the hearts of others. And we pray now that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you you might release us from the desire to fix ourselves through fixing others and where we might instead be signposts towards the cross where you have fixed the world and where you continue to open wide your arms of love to embrace us as your children and where you've called us to eat as you alongside you as friends. We pray, Lord, that through our desire to pastor we might choose excellence and we might plan and prepare appropriately 
and that we might not be destroyed by our desire to pastor, but we might be enriched in the journey of pastoring, and that those whom we choose to pastor towards might be blessed and might be transformed. And Father, we pray we might model those boundaries and that great love that you modelled. We thank you for the privilege of serving you together for your glory and for the benefit of those with emotional and mental health issues in our churches and in our societies. In your name, amen. Amen. Thanks very much, everyone. Jonathan, we haven't got any time for questions, have we? We've got time for two questions. Has anyone got two, two questions? One question, one, one two questions. Uh, we have a microphone. There's a chap there with a question. We're going to break for our parallel sessions in just one second. Let's just... Hi there. Uh, just Hi. thinking about everyday services, worship yes. services, and you come in feeling with whatever emotional crisis. How does that permeate into the actual environment of a... A church service as such. In terms of you as a client coming in, with, in or any client coming in? in Anybody. Little, yeah. I mean, I think... Not, what, not coming to... But just being in the environment of a church I mean, I, I, I always say to my congregation, it's so important that we're authentic. I mean, what I'd always... What my, 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 my perception would be that if you were able to come along to a church service and take a seat in the pews, it's unlikely that you're actually going to be in a pastoral crisis at that moment in time. So my perception would say, if you're actually able to get here and sit down and sit through a service, you probably aren't in as distinctive pastoral crisis as the one that I was maybe alluding to in my talk. You might be in a pastoral, in, a, in an ongoing situation of crisis within the wider remit of family life, which is something that I deal with every week. What I think is important is that we're authentic when we're in church and that we have roots where pastoral ministry can take place within the context of the congregation. And we have a pastoral prayer ministry team who are available at any time during the service, after the service, before the service, to meet and to pray. And that's a regular occurrence. I mean, I think what's important is that we remember that worship needs to be orderly in a sense, that we're coming together to worship God. And actually that there's healing at, at, the, at the altar and there's healing in worship too. The church isn't necessarily, the church at worship isn't necessarily the place to initiate that pastoral care ministry in, in a crisis context. I mean, I would normally be thinking about pastoral crisis where I literally have to get in the car and drive to someone's house or to you know, go down to the police station or go to the hospital. But, but, but there are crises which are brought to light in church. The key thing is, have we got environments where people can talk freely and receive prayer and initiate conversations in that setting? And are we inviting people to be emotionally present and actually authentic in our worship environment. And I, I, I mean, I think it's most important that people either sit, stand, cry, kneel, lie on the floor, create a star shape, whatever they want to do, depending on how they are emotionally present. So that is normal and normative in my environment. Other people have different environments where those things are true or real. Uh, another one more question before we go off to parallel stations. Yes, lady at the front, hello. First of all, um, my own is about your policies. Policies, yeah. Sorry, I can't. Deprivation of liberty safeguard. The deprivation of liberty. Okay, and uh, because when you um, have putting your policy in place, it's very important as well that you're relevant to what is going on in the society where you are. Absolutely. 
But how do we integrate that in our pastoral care? Because somebody might decide that he wants to claim his life, and um, he has the capacity to make that decision. Yes. So where do you stand as a pastor? What's really important is when we're talking about policies, we're talking about policies that the church is is self-making for its pastoral care management. Now, sensible pastoral care management will work out policies in line with policies of governmental agencies. So we're not working at a tangent to what the governmental policies would outline as being good practice. At the same time, we're not hamstringing ourselves without with the, with, you know, denying ourselves the freedom of the Christian church to do the ministry that the Christian church is called to do. What's important is that we've thought, ourselves, we've thought through our policies as a church and we see how they integrate with the policies of the agencies with which we are liaising. Now, we are entitled to operate as a church and encourage us to operate in pastoral care as a church. We aren't social services. We're a church. But we'd be sensible to understand good practice according to social services in order that what we do, you know, as far as is reasonable, mirrors what they do. We're, we're, but at the same time, we are distinctively Christian. Okay? So what we're not doing is saying my policy is a social service policy which says I'm not allowed to mention God or religion. Actually, my policy says, number one, pray. Okay, that's great. That's my policy. Fantastic. I'm going to do that now. But what we're doing in terms of good practice hopefully integrates with good practice through local agency. So it's a, it's a, it's, the policy is about us as churches designing policies that work for us but also trying to bring the best good practice out of local agencies. I think that's really, really important. There's so much that we can learn from those agencies, and there's so much that those agencies can learn from us. And it's that integration that me and Rob and, 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 and Jonathan and, and, and Kate are really all about. Thanks so much for listening. Jonathan's going to introduce you to the parallel sessions, and I'm going to disappear. Right. Thank you, Will. Thank you.